Well, you know my name is Simon And I like to do drawings I like to draw all day long So come and do drawings with me Come and do drawings with me Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Third Degree Burn. My name is Brian Hughes and I am here with an august personage. Is that right? Did I say that Close right? Enough. Okay. Of, uh, of, of host here. We've got, of course, our great and wonderful Kurt Greenfield. Say hi, Kurt. Good morning. John Hyatt. Hey, everyone. And last but not least, or maybe least, I don't know, he's been losing a lot of weight lately. Tim Elliott. Hey, Tim, how's it going? It is going pretty good. How's everybody else doing on a fine Sunday morning? Oh, man, I am so excited. It, it, I mean, it's been a while since we recorded a show proper, and it's the first one this year, actually. I mean, I, we did the Indiana Jones with Scott and Chris, but that was we actually recorded that last year, didn't we? Uh, yeah, December. Yeah. Yeah, because that, that came out, I guess, January 2nd, and then we did the Spider-Man no way home discussion. A lot has gone on these last couple of weeks. It's been very busy for everybody. I know that everybody, we, we've all had a hard time hitting our schedules with each other and, and just so much, uh, you know, just <laughs> in real life, uh, hitting us all in, in big ways. You know, for me, it's been, and uh, think, things are just crazy. And then, of course, we had in Texas uh, a snowstorm, ice storm. Uh, that that hit us uh, just a couple days ago, and it's finally melted down, and we're back to normal. Hopefully this week, um, but it's just been been crazy here. We did have a little comic book convention, and we'll talk about that a little bit. But uh, that's uh, that's things with me. How's it going for you guys? Well, we got the same ice storm that uh, that clipped you about a day or two behind, and we're just digging out now. So. Uh... I don't think there's any travel restrictions left in our area, but uh, we're just struggling to get above freezing today. So, yeah, it's been a tough winter here. And, of course, David, we haven't heard from him since he got snowed in. Well, I, I, I got a note from him a little while ago. and it's, let, me, let me read this um, real quickly. All work and no play make Jack. <laughs> hey, guys, uh, I'm, I'm kind of worried about it. Could someone call his house? Sure. Okay. Lines are down. <laughs> Direct from the Overlook Inn. How about you, John? What's going on? Hey, you know, we got hit by that that um, Arctic breeze, too. We, we've been dropping down into the high 40s here oh. in Southern California. It's oh, life is brutal. so hard there. It's so hard there. Oh, my God. We've been, we've been um, hunkering up and storing food. <laughs> <laughs> bone-chilling cold, huh? Yes, it is bone-chilling um, yeah, well, things oh. are going great. Uh, I got to see finally Spider-Man: No Way Home, and uh, really enjoyed that. And uh, no spoilers. Uh, Some of us haven't seen it yet. Oh, did I say anything? I just said no, I no, I'm just it. Is that a spoiler. Let's be careful not to go there. <laughs> well, there's we no way home. Spoiled it enough when we talked about it in the last show. That's why I bailed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How about no, you, Tim? Uh, yeah, no. I mean, oh. what's there's not much to spoil. I mean, anything that I would think would be a spoiler has already been shown on the previews, but I'm not going to, I won't do it. True, true. I just, I enjoyed it. I felt, I personally felt it was maybe a tad too long for theater theatrical, but it was all right. It was good. Uh, fun to see all the actors there and the story actually. You think that song you're going to love the Batman? Cause that apparently has like a three hour running time now. Yeah. I'm going to pass on that. I think I saw <laughs> until I watch it at home and then, 
I saw an ad today for uh, who's having a tie-in with that uh, Little Caesars Pizza, and it's a bat-shaped pizza. Calzone. It's calzone. The calzone. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> the calzone are really, really good. I just want the calzone by itself. I don't want the pepperoni pizza around it because they do the cheese differently. But I gotta say, I gotta say, the best pizza I've had lately is Pizza Hut's Spice Lovers Pizza. It is just freaking amazing that's just me i mean your your mileage may vary cool so what are we talking about today tim we are it's a little little different show this time we are going to talk about a book from 1980 called the art of john byrne or out of my head that's what the title has it and this is a and i don't i couldn't find a lot on the publication of this is even an exact month it came out uh Mike's got it as coming out the same month as Untold Tales of the Batman number one, which is August of 1980. So I don't know if that's because this is not a issue. It's called volume one. And I've never seen volume two or, or any of the no. others. It's the only one no. I've got. Mm-hmm. Um, it was uh, $5.95. It's a, I think it's like a Baxter. It's like a, a square bound book, if I remember right. I'm looking at the digital. I don't have my physical copy in front of me no yeah. it's it's staple bound is it staple okay so it's that's uh it's called a saddle not a saddle stitch that's uh oh is it a saddle stitch i can't remember well, my, it's, uh, it's not your traditional comic book in terms of format shape no. or weight this no, is a, a little bit more of a library book or a reference book right it's or almost like a like, like something you find in a magazine like a uh, which I I thought was interesting that I've had this. I think I know I've got this in my collection, and I thought I had read the interviews. There's there's a forward by Roger Stern and one by Terry Austin, and then there's an interview with Byrne. And I thought I had read that, and rereading this, and I couldn't get all the way through it. I realized I had not read it. Of course, a lot of his stuff we've talked about from interviews and stuff, and just theories on him. Because this is the the part I thought was most interesting is this is right at the end of his run on the X-Men. So when he's talking yeah. in the interview, he's, he doesn't, if he was talking about leaving, it's, you don't get the feeling he's going to leave. Cause he's talking about what they're going to do in the upcoming books. So, I mean, this is for, for a guy that's really only been in the business, what this time, six years. And to have a, a kind of a big prestige book like this put out on his work, I mm-hmm. think it's pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. It made a big splash when it came out in fan circles. Um, that is, if you were any sort of a fan of the X-Men, this was one of the wave of support books that came out um, from various different uh, you know, publishers and supporters. You, you had to have one, and, and we were all, I was there when this one came out. It was so impressive, the, the breadth of characters that are contained in this book, in the sketchbook, in drawings, just it, it, it opened up vistas. I mean, it really introduced me to who Byrne was and what he could do. It definitely showed some things I'd never seen before um, and, and, and gave us, you know, peeks into interesting things. And of course, it's things that now tie into his X-Men Elsewhere work. That's um, Yeah, that's exactly his talk about the what if story he was going to yeah. do with Stern or uh, with Claremont. Now, I, I did some background research on the company that produces SQ Productions, and there's very little available about them out there. 
Uh, now, they did produce uh, a, a number of art of books or portfolios. They did uh, John Hall, uh, Marshall Rogers' Batman, uh, Conan by Bart Sears, Conan by John Basima, classic Conan. Um, they also did a Marvel team-up portfolio. Uh, Neil Adams, port- they actually, I think, did two Neil Adams portfolios. And um, World Without End by Jeffrey Jones. And, I mean, they've been basically producing stuff since about, looks like, 1979. Uh, and their most recent thing came out um, in 2003, and that was The Art of John Hall. But when you do a web search for SQ Productions, all that comes up is a uh, audio-video company. Uh, but when I look at the name of, uh, what's his name, uh, Sal Cartuccio, who was the editor on the book, he actually is still in business with SQ Productions out of New York. He has been CEO for 49 years, and that's per his profile on LinkedIn. So it's still out there. I don't know. He's probably still raking in money from uh, reprint back sales or whatever, because I see that it looks like some of the things are still, you know, still going for sale here and there. Yeah, I think it was reprinted as late as 2008. I thought really? maybe I haven't seen that. It may have some additional material in it. Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't realize they had done a reprint on it. Well, well when you just look for the art of John Byrne, that pops up, and I think that's a. It has a different cover, so it may be a different book. But I'm I'm not sure who. Well, who did they? It, but uh, the, the 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 story that's included. Critical Error has been excerpted and printed as a comic book, a traditional floppy comic book. Yeah, it was colorized and cleaned up. Yes, Yes. sanitized. Sanitized Uh, all the naughty bits have been covered up. But uh, I remember that coming out and going, oh, is this an ongoing series? No, it was just once. Now, it's got, of course, some some write-ups, the forward by Roger Stern, uh, a write-up, uh, an afterward by Chris Claremont, and there's even a uh, an unusual write-up by Terry Austin, uh, all of which I think we'll discuss here as we get into it. Uh, but uh, I guess, Tim, do you want to handle the the other bits of minutiae? I don't know if there is any other bits that, of minutiae. Like I said, the only, the only thing I could find that might have come out in the same month, because uh, it just says this is 1980, I couldn't find a month, it was... And this is according to uh, Mike's Amazing World is Untold Tales of the Batman Number One, a story called In the Beginning, which is that not one of the ones we were covered in the Power Record that yeah. Dave gave us? Yeah, thought we'd covered we, that. We, we've covered that. Yeah, thought so. And I mean, the thing is, is like based on the interview that Byrne gives in this book, he hadn't even. Uh, done that work on Bat- the Untold Legend of Batman. He was already talking about it in the interview, but it was just called The Legend of the Batman. And he still, at that point, thought he was going to be doing all three issues. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is, uh, for what we do have on this, it's, again, we said it's The Art of John Byrne or Out of My Head. And that is, if anybody's a member of our Facebook page, we'll see that as a teaser image I put up, which is uh, a picture of John Byrne with his basically his head exploding almost like he's been shot uh it's just kind of a self-portrait uh and what i've got is the editor is sal cortuccio cortuccio mm-hmm. our book design and interview is robert keenan our photos are by robert keenan there's a couple black and white photos of burn in here uh, and that's it unless you want to know the library of congress catalog card number mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> 
Uh, and this is published, like you said, out of Brooklyn, New York. And it's, it's just kind of a little, um, from, from the, the interview, it sounds like they talk about the last X-Men book that they'd worked on that had come out was 129. And yeah. he, he hints that there are things coming up that he can't talk about. But he the does, trauma, the, yeah. is, he referred to it as the trauma, which had to be the Dark Phoenix saga. Yeah. But he, did, he does say that they are going to wrap up Dark Phoenix. He talks about that they've got things plotted out through 1981. Um, he says some very complimentary things of Chris Claremont, that he's, you know, He's he's nice to work with. He's easy to work with. You know, he takes his input um, and he kind of jokingly says that he's, you know, he he lets him have the credit so that people think he's actually writing the book. But I think that's just, <laughs> I think that's just John taking the Yeah, that if it's a characterization, so, uh, that's Claremont. If it's a visualization, it's Byrne. Yep, yep. Um, and it's 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 an interesting interview, especially the. Uh, the else the X Men X Men stuff and the the what if story about if what if Magneto had created the uh, uh, the X Men and some of the sketches it, this this interview has got burned sketches throughout not I don't think there's say clips from comics it's just like his sketchbook and I, the Angel and the Beast are almost exactly and Cyclops's helmet are almost exactly the way they appear in X Men X Men. Yeah, and the beast has got the claws, but everything else is a little different. Yeah, but Cyclops's helmet is similar to the powered-up helmet he wears. Uh, yeah, Scarlet Witch looks like Scarlet Witch, but Angel has the sword, mm-hmm. his flaming sword. He, he mentions that. Um, so that was interesting to 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 kind of it's it's like a little time machine. You can go back and see where his mm-hmm. mind was and what he was working on and where things have gone now. Well, as I as I recall, when this came out, um, it it's keyed into to my uh, return to comics. I got in just as Days of Future Past was hitting the stands, and so that's what got me back into comics. And between that and his departure of X Men, is only what about three months? That's the window where this book would have come out, where I would have seen it. Um, so it. You know, it may, the interview and the and the comments may have been around X Men one twenty nine, but it didn't start. This it didn't. This book did not hit the stands until we get to about one forty four. Yeah, about right in right in that time period. So it, maybe it was a year or so in in production. I don't know. Could be, which is what what you think would have been a shock to the fans. But you read this and it's like, wait a minute, he's already gone or he's leaving. Uh, Kind of an abrupt, and that I, I, I was interesting. He has some very uh, complimentary things to say about Dave Cockrum and how mm-hmm. and taking his taking over from him and how he was such a fan of Cockrum. Um, but yeah, it's yeah. Uh, I, what what I th- found interesting was him saying that you know he and Claremont were and and, and Claremont mirrored this in his his forward is that they were very similar that they're very much alike in things, and I think that's probably what helps to create that perceived friction that we um all see or or, or read about on burns uh, site but i i i think that even despite everything that's gone on and the quitting of the book and everything that they are actually friends yeah i don't think that's like anything it's like they probably had disagreements but i don't think they have any uh animosity towards each other but no uh, it's, it's well, i don't like... know i i got the impression there was a great deal of animosity um uh, but I, I haven't done any follow-up on that. It's just I, 
I was very disappointed to to read and get that flavor that had been um, a, a bad breakup because they, they were the best selling book. They were the best selling team at that point on the X Men and the the Teen Titans coming in a close second. So to hear that that he had left, that it was over, it was just a real shock. And you know, we all wanted to know why. At least that that's my perception from back then. You may have a different view. Having well, done more I, I, again, I wasn't reading this when it came out, so it, it was all—it's all past yeah. history for me. So I can't, you know, it's not the way it is with other other. And a lot of times, artists would leave. I guess this was more publicized because otherwise, sometimes you'd be reading a book and suddenly you notice the art has changed, and like, oh, mm -hmm. I guess somebody's left left this book, or you usually don't notice as much with if a writer is gone. It's not publicized the way it is now. Or uh, it would be more, you know, you can imagine the uh, the articles they have in this if Wizard was around when uh, Burn left the book. But yeah, you know, it's, I, it's, I, Ellen, I think, yeah, Ellen I think the thing that comic buyer guide was the only uh, was the only newspaper was the only instrument for fandom to get national news at that point. I think the thing that really got to Burn the most was that whenever he was discussing this with people in the know. They always said, wow, Claremont's really doing a great job writing that. You know, They were giving Claremont all the credit for it and Byrne just credit for the art, even though that they were sharing the plotting and the storyline you know, uh, chores together. Yeah, he mentions that in this article that they were they had thought of changing the credits to like Chris author, Claremont, author, John yeah. Byrne authors, so that he, you know, he, he, people would know that he's doing at least Fifty percent of the work, sometimes more, sometimes less, and yeah, I, I can see that if you're if you're a creative and you want your due, that if you think somebody else is being overshadowed, then I would think that that might rub you the wrong way. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. And of course, you know they they talk about um, Burns' very very early work, and it turned out that the Dracula story was his first professional work overall even before his work at charlton he yeah, got that one little dracula story first, and then you know he did the work at charlton and and you know it, there was also the interesting uh piece about um you know the fact everybody knows well i say everybody knows but, but we all know that he is colorblind to a point he actually thought that iron fist costume was brown not green mm. and <laughs> um so some people pointed out wait a minute if that's the case, then how did he do those colored covers for Charlton? Because he did those himself. And that came because he's got colorblind proof markers that are labeled with the specific colors. So he may not be able to see the right color, but the marker will do that color. Well, I don't, don't know how someone makes that differentiation. <laughs> I was like, well, somebody okay. had to come in and tell him, hey, see that color? That's red. I don't care what, I don't know. But that's. <laughs> To me, that's what's always, and not being colorblind, I can't relate, but he sees, you know, green, and we, and, you know, if he was color yet, we would think, oh, that's really brown. But to him, if he's always seen that color as green, in his mind, that's green, even though to us, and the majority of everybody else, it looks like brown. So that, I would think that would be hard going through life, not being able to, I guess your brain is going to associate that color, uh, that color as, you know, if, if somebody came to you and said, this color you've been looking at your whole life, you think is red. Oh, that's really, that's, that's blue. 
you're going to still see it as red, even though everybody else yeah. is telling you, no, no, it's really blue. So tastes like chicken. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> well, the, it's, you know, not off topic and not off topic. They had the same problem with the animated Star Trek show. The color for the art director was colorblind. And that's why the Klingons outfits are purple, I think, and pink because he didn't know what color to make them or he thought he was making them a different working, color. Someone working in that visual medium and they're colored one. Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, but, but then again, here we have Byrne who, you know, admittedly colorblind to a point, uh, specific areas of color. Well, how do they test you? I don't, I've, as many times as I've been to the eye doctor, I don't think I've ever been tested. I guess they do that early in maybe uh, elementary school where it's like they give you a, a slide and say, can you read the, yeah, you what know. number is is uh, printed here in this circle? Right. And if you have one type of a color blindness, you see one type of figure. If you have another type of of vision, you see more of the figure and read it as a different number. Right. That's like how the, that's done. It's like the old password game where you had the thing in red film. Yeah. Yeah. You had to, yeah, you had to run it like the red that. film in order to see it. Yeah. Okay. Well, that makes sense. They used to have those on. Was it the back of? Um, it was the back of the old Transformers. Uh, toys, the figures. They had a little power grid on the back, and I think it came with a piece of red film you had to put over it to be able to read the power ratings for mm-hmm. the transformer you just bought. Oh, cool! Because I remember taking that and thinking I was going to. Uh, I had taken. Have you ever seen the really big? I'm gonna call them old old people sunglasses, but they're the sunglasses <laughs> that'll fit over your glasses, and they really kind of cover your whole head. Mm-hmm. I had a Lone Ranger, Clayton Moore glasses. Similar to that, but they're yeah, yeah. almost like goggles because they'll fit over, you know, they're for people yeah. that are either driving. Anyway, like I took, yeah, I took a it's pair of those and I painted them yellow and I cut a strip in it and I was going to use that red film on the inside because I was making my own Cyclops glasses. Cool. Yeah. Cool. So. I mean, the first thing that, uh, going back to this, though, it's like the first thing that I read in this was Roger Stern's forward. Uh, Roger Stern is, is uh, you know, above and beyond everything, one of my favorite writers out there. Definitely handled the, what, what I thought was one, one of the best runs on Amazing Spider-Man uh, there, and giving us the Hobgoblin, amongst other things. But um, him talking about John, of course, you know, they, they've been friends uh, from the very beginnings uh, at, even before Charlton, uh, where he and Bob Blayton were working together. But CPL. Roger, yeah, CPL. Roger's, you know, sitting there talking about John back in the late 70s doing 40 to 50 pages a month. And I'm like, how? I just wonder how that compares to other artists. I mean, Kirby's probably going to be in the same realm as far as what he did. Maybe, and I'm wondering about John Basim, but I think John Basim is too detailed uh, when he's doing full pencils. I don't know that, that he'd be able to, I, I don't know if he had that kind of output. Well, that was when I kind of first got into comics, which, which I always heard about Byrne, that he was, and I think it's in the Fumetti book, maybe. You know, he talks about how he's known for being fast. And mm-hmm. in this, he, they ask him what his work day is like. <clears throat> he says, I get up at eight, start work at nine work till 1230, have lunch, work till three. And he says with that schedule, he can get out three detailed pages or five breakdowns. Wow. And that's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like a lot of work. <clears throat> Good for I've, him. 
I found it interesting because, you know, over the years on his own website, he's made, you know, no bones that he's never really been late for a book. And only one book has been late. and That wasn't his fault. But he talked in here about how Iron Fist 3 was going to be a week late because he was, you know, having a hard, hard time with apparently that was the first one that he actually got to plot or, you know, that, that Claremont gave him the leeway to do it basically just off of bare, bare notes rather than a full script. And so he had to lay it out himself. He had to sit there and figure the, the story points and then let Claremont come behind and script. So it's like, but he did make mention in a couple of a couple times where he was a little behind or a little rushed. And, and that's the first time I'd ever seen him mention. He doesn't mention it anymore today though. No, that, that's funny. Cause he, when he went to him and said he was going to be late and wanted to fill in, they kind of huh. laughed in his face. He's like, that's apparently that was common. He said when he took over the X-Men, it was four months late. So, ouch. Yeah. yeah. But he, he picked right up and went monthly with it. So, I mean, again, he's taken over for Cockrum, who uh, is notoriously slow. But yeah, there's a reason for that. That's always heard about Art Adam that is, I think oh, yeah. maybe because he's super detailed, but it's why he couldn't be on a regular book was because he was, he wasn't fast enough. Uh, same, I think, with um, Kerry Camel. That's why he had a hard time staying in a monthly book because he was not, um, he wasn't fast enough. And I think well, that also just... could be why Byrne doesn't speak about being late or being tardy or running behind. It wouldn't do to put that out there to get a reputation that, oh, he's struggling. Well, yeah, I mean... would want to be known as hitting his deadlines. And so it wouldn't be in his interest to ever discuss it again. Yeah, and I think he regrets mentioning it there because I mean, really, none of his books ever ever did come out late. Right. So he he was he was always good, and he's made that a point of of his professional pride to mention that in later years and actually chide other creators who can't seem to hit a single deadline. Um, you know, I mean, when you're looking at the modern era of comics, and when I say modern era, I'm talking from the 1990s until today. That you know, there are very few artists that are keeping up with their schedules well yeah look at image when it first launched those books were uh yeah some who's dinging books were years late who's hitting a ding uh, i've heard a dinging. couple of dings i got well i had a i think a text my wife texted me oh okay sorry anyway but no i mean again he's probably been the most consistent in getting his stuff out on time versus any other artist out there. One thing I did find really interesting in the Byrne interview was that even back then, in 1979, he was already thinking of the Batman Captain America story, which if you uh, check out Michael Bailey's, uh, the, uh, what do you call it, uh, the his show with Andrew Leyland on uh, Bailey's Fortress of Fortitude, or what was it, Fortress of Bailey-tude? Uh, they just covered Batman Captain America and they they gave it a glowing review said basically it's Burns finest work uh, <laughs> over his entire career wow that's something I mean yeah, it seems like he really like... had fun with that yeah. and he did. look at the faces and both of the characters are smiling yep well it, it was his Adam West type Batman you know and I mean I, I when I read that I could I could read it with Adam West's voice. Definitely not a Kevin Conroy voice, you know, uh, that was that was just a, a yeah, again, that's one of those perfect books and we need to cover it. But 
give us some time since they just covered it there. But yeah, go go over to Fortress of Bailitude and check out their. Uh, I forget what they call the show because it's basically they're talking about books that nobody else is talking about. Bat and yet, Cap. what? Bat Cap is how <laughs> I keep hear it be referred to all the time. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. The other thing that I found interesting was that when uh, the, the Bob Keenan's the interviewer, and I, I'm not a big fan of his interviewing style because he doesn't follow up on questions, and the questions themselves, some of them were were very pedantic. But one of the things that he, I did like is he asked him, what would you be doing if, if you couldn't work in comics? And he basically said he'd like to direct movies or TV. And he even let out the little tidbit that, Back in, in Calgary, he ran his own TV show. Apparently, it was probably on public access cable, A History of Comics, that he had hosted there and done several episodes on. Now, if anybody, anybody out there has footage of this, <laughs> I want it. I want to see it. I got to <laughs> see it. So if you got it, send me a link or, or whatever. If, if it's going to take money, just let me know how much. But don't get ridiculous. I have no money. But, uh, yeah, that's definitely something I'd be interested in seeing. I, I did a couple quick searches around trying to see if I could find anything. But, you know, YouTube is so full of uh, the sci-fi uh, interviews. And now um, there are a lot of people that are doing motion comics or they're doing read-throughs of Burns comics um, on YouTube. So you're getting flooded with that kind of stuff because it's very popular at the moment. Well, I think find it on doing... three quarter inch or half inch VHS or beta medium. Uh, beta was not popular in the in the uh, interior of the the continent. It was popular on the west coast and the east coast, but uh, it was VHS everywhere else. Because hmm. I worked in that industry at that time period, and if it was public access, it's most likely going to be on VHS, and uh, you know. <laughs> There were so many VHS tapes floating around and for sale because VCRs were coming in in the 1980s that if he did yeah. anything, uh, it was probably on three-quarter inch tape. It's no, not, we're talking the medium. We're talking earlier in like the mid-70s. So that would so, have been either one inch black and white reel-to-reel or, or three-quarter inch. Three inch umatic yeah. cassette. And, you know. You try to find a machine that'll play that these days. Uh, the TV station that I work for does not have one. Period. Uh, the college campus, 20 minutes away from me, they got one. Really? Yeah. Wow. That TCU? No, UTA. Oh. I'd love to see a, uh, a sample of it if anybody's got any footage. But this type of stuff was not saved, um, was not archived. It'd be very, very rare for somebody to have anything produced um, from you know earlier than the mid '80s. Well, I, I bet Burns got copies of it, but he's not going to let that stuff out. But if, if you think well, about what he does, <laughs> what, yeah. I, I just might, I, I just may go on there and ask him see what later today and see what he says because I, I, I am just com totally interested in this and seeing what he would say. You know, giving you know the history of comics from his point of view. You know, as a as a English ex expatriate to you know come to calgary and this is where he's doing this before he's even moved to the united states so most of his uh comics background is in certain types of reprints bound black and white reprints of uh dc comics and such first thing he ever read was like superboy and then superman and then finally batman well he and says uh 
Yeah, go ahead. The, uh, they talk about Alpha Flight, which is interesting because during the interview, Alpha Flight hasn't got its own book yet. No. And he's saying, well, you know, well, where did those characters come from? And he said some of that was based on uh, some 1940s black and white Canadian comics. Because he said he, he mentioned, which is one thing I love about Alpha Flight, he made all the characters regionally Canadian, you know, very Canadian centric. Um, but back to your point of him wanting to direct, that's basically when he's writing and drawing a book, he's art directing a film. It's, it's, he's, it's visual storytelling. He's moving the characters around. He's having them do certain things. So it's, it's not dissimilar from doing Story movies. Book. Yeah. But if you talk to him now, he's got no interest at all in, in, in working in that media. Well, Which I is sad that, because because it, it sounds like he'd want to be a showrunner uh, or or director, and I think that he would be because yeah, he would want a very particular vision, a very particular way. And you know, he's sitting there and he's talked about his preferences over the years, and it, like the one thing, like as far as inkers go, he makes no bones. Tony De Zuniga did the best inks on his pencils or his the artwork actually looked the way he wanted it to look not the way he drew it but the way he envisioned it looking and then when he talks about movies that you know are in the public today uh was it reign of fire the dragon movie with uh matthew mcconaughey and christian bale he says that looks like something i wrote and drew hmm. interesting yeah that was a later comment though well, that i, I wonder if i'm not wanting wanting to to work in the the industry now has more to do with the industry and not the format. It may I be... think he also recognizes he has total control over his artwork, over his comic book that he's writing and creating. But it's a team player type situation when you get to Hollywood, and there are so many compromises that have to be made. Yeah, absolutely. You're going to get right. you're going to get studio notes, and I'm sure many uh, directors bristle at that. They don't like being told because you're they're thinking well you're just a, a money counter what do you know about art or my yeah. vision so don't tell me what to do i thought and very telling in that of course is um superman the movie which while it's a richard donner movie you know it's a salkine production and just you know the the iron hand that they put on everything <clears throat> they're even firing richard donner after the first one was complete um and, and, of course, Byrne makes comment in here that he had seen Superman in the theater 18 times. Yeah, that's something else. And, of course, this is before the day that everybody actually had VCR. So he couldn't – he would have seen it more if he had the opportunity, but it left his theater. So it was even before he'd gotten his own um, own VCR. But um, what else did – there were so many things that he brought up. Uh, one, one thing that, that I found interesting is that he was talking about Terry Austin – and that, um, or is that Roger Stern? Yeah, Roger Stern mentioned it, that um, anytime you saw either Popeye or the Phantom Stranger show up in the X-Men, mm -hmm. that was Terry Austin. That was Austin, yeah. Yes. yeah. <laughs> now, I caught Popeye, or I, I think actually John pointed out Popeye to us. But where was the Phantom Stranger? Was he in that big X-Men 137? Uh, he's he's in the crowd scene. Again, That it's that same era. If... if um, Stern is referencing it, then you know the Stern interview has come later than than uh, the Byrne interview, which yeah. was earlier. Well, we brought up that he has he's a and he says so in the interview that he is a big fan of Larry Niven, and we've yeah. found he puts the puppeteers 
which is a character in the, I think the Ringworld series by Niven and several of his it's in the Dr. McCoy it's one of the alternate covers and he'll put I think it's in the one of the aliens in either the Reed Richard the trial of Reed Richards or possibly one of the X-Men I can't remember one but he he'll put that character kind of in the background I'll look for the Phantom Stranger and try to uh, post in the show notes and the image of that Stern talks about himself being in the books Byrne will put I think in the uh that um, the Alpha Flight yeah. one we covered one twenty one twenty one, yes, yeah. Calvary. That he's that he himself's in there, and he said his father's been in. Burns' father has been in the book several times. Yeah, well, all he, his friends. Yeah, and yeah, Roger Stern had said virtually all the innocent bystanders in the Calgary scenes were friends of John's. That makes and sense. He, I mean, says, what? he says I, I've discovered myself lurking in a book and crowded scene, or plastered across a wanted poster in, in a burn drawn book. And then the, the ultimate guest appearance was the recent two-part yarn set in, in Calgary, yeah, where virtually every one of his friends was in there. And that's cool. That would be cool to be able to re- open up a book and then see you represented in there. Though, though for me, whenever someone represents me, I go, I look like that? <laughs> well, I mean, why, why not draw somebody you know as opposed to coming up with a new face? True, true. Yep. Now, did, did you guys read the Terry Austin write-up? I did. I thought yeah. I thought that yeah. and Stern were both kind of they were kind of taking the Mickey out of Burn. They were kind of being trying to be funny. Yeah, and well, that's I, so good. I liked that because it gave you a real sense of camaraderie that they were all good friends. Well, yeah. I thought, uh, Austin's comment of uh, that as much as he's done, he said I probably inked more of his page than anybody else. Is but I'm not bored yet. So you know, basically, bring it on. Yeah, but and eventually he had to say, "Well, I don't want to be known as the guy that inks burn." Yeah, and but that was in what eighty six or later. I mean, but yeah, I mean he he didn't really ink a whole lot of his Fantastic Four, and I think one maybe two issues. Well, Austin's not going to get away from that. He's always going to be associated with the burn. He's like Leonard yeah. McCartney. He's the the burn yeah. Austin uh, group. But I also thought it was interesting that Byrne mentioned Palmer that he'd wanted. Sounds like he'd kind of preferred Palmer over Austin. Well, he kind of said, you know, I'd like Palmer to ink my stuff, I guess, until I actually see it. <laughs> because he knows he's going to change it like he does everybody else. He even did, you know, to Neil Adams, you know, that 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 Tom Palmer just does what he does. And he redraws a lot. And I always associate palmer's uh pencils with john basima just because he did that long run on adventures with him and that's what it looks like mostly to me but for all i know john basima drew, drew stick figures and let tom palmer fill it all in <laughs> well i think that's you i think you have to and, and, and as an artist should you if you're a penciler should you feel that oh they have to doggedly adhere to what i drew don't change it all and uh, you know what is it, Jason uh, from Mal uh, from uh, not Mallrats? It's uh, what's where he plays the anchor, the Kevin Smith movie. I'm, I'm blanking on it. What is that? It's it's a uh, uh, Affleck and oh Jason. yeah 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 Banky 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 yeah. And he says, "What do you do?" And he goes, "I'm the anchor." And he goes, "Oh, I I ink it and I enhance it and I add shading, add and, you know, depth, yeah, depth." So. So you trace. Yeah, so, so you just trace it. So where is that line between enhancing it and 
changing it. Embellishing. Embellishing, right. You know, do you have to, because as an inker, you have to put something of yourself into it or else you are just a tracer where you just, just have the artist do tight pencils and they'll just uh, do like a photostatic of it and just go off that. So, uh, I know you've got the, you've got the artist uh, edition of the X-Men. How does Burns pencils compare to when after Austin's gone over them, Brian? You, you can't tell that from the artist editions. And, and that's, that's a frustrating thing is that, you know, it's like uh, the, there are a few times when I've seen Burns early, pencils versus the you know the finished product i think uh, there's some marvel team-ups uh where, where you you see his early pencils and they're so tight and they're so depth filled and then you you're almost disappointed by the inks um i think i think the ones i saw were dave hunt doing the inks and i'm, I'm just like gosh why couldn't he have you know gone on this more but maybe he had a time crunch because they're so detailed um but a, a lot of it i mean the early stuff the x-men with austin I don't think I've ever seen a pre-inked page and I would love to see it just to see the difference. Or you mean I know actually that, in person see a pre-inked page? Well, I mean, even if it's a Xerox copy online, I mean, I'm just, you know, I, I, I haven't seen a pre-inked page. Uh, I mean, back in the day they're working from, you know, photo stats, but I, I think they're actually doing, working on the original art page. They've taken photo stats of them, but they're actually working on the original art page. So you're not going to, see those unless somebody has got those photo stats yeah well i like i like palmer on burn i think we talked about that when we did the crossover with back the bins on the the thor team up and is it havoc what was it well, that was we did? that was tony disney but wasn't one of them palmer i don't think or was so. tony on both not, of them i no, know that uh, discussion tony on came one of up. them and so now i gotta go and look i know that we came up with that discussion and i had said i'd like Palmer on it. I like Palmer on his. Uh, I mean, I like Palmer as an anchor. I mean, I love Austin. Austin and Burn just that's that's just like as peanut butter and jelly. That just goes together. But uh, and I don't know which ones. I would say probably Burns peanut butter and probably Austin's jelly. The um, no Ricardo Villamonte was the anchor on the Havoc issue. Yeah, I don't think that we actually saw Palmer inking Burn until Starbrand. Maybe that's the discussion we had when we covered that. And then X-Men, The Hidden Years, you know, and we haven't covered any of those, which I'd like to now. After reading a lot of Elswin, I wish we're going to get our first new page of a new issue tomorrow. Yeah. So I have a question for you guys. We were talking earlier before we started recording, and Kirk and I both picked this up when it came out. Tim or Brian, did, when did you get the art of John Byrne? Go ahead, Tim. I, I I can't say for sure, but it's probably one of those that when I was just been diving when I first started, you know, and I, you know, I've mentioned this, I started later than everybody else. I probably didn't start until I was 17 or so, 18. Uh, and I was probably at a con and it's one of those that you just find in a kind of a miscellaneous box along with, mm-hmm. I've got the, the index of the X-Men. They came out with kind of a big prestige oh, yeah. book like this. Some one of those X-Men kind of books. Companion, I got those too. Yeah, <laughs> one of those. It's just you know you you. It probably was in a magazine. Uh, it was, probably wasn't one of the comics, and it's just like oh, okay, you know. And then that's like anything John Byrne that was not outrageously expensive. I was trying to grab, so that's probably where I um, I came in, and I probably thumbed through it. That's why I thought I read this interview. I probably thumbed through and looked because a lot of this is his sketchbook towards the back. It's got his yeah. 
drawings and stuff. Yeah. And I looked at that and I didn't probably sit down and take the time to read because I was like, I just want to look at the pretty pictures. Uh, and it was interesting because it's takeoffs. So it's some recognizable characters and some are just things that he's, you know, whatever he wanted to, to, to draw. Things just in his head. Yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting. There's some early Superman, which bears a little resemblance. I mean, it's not exactly what he does. Well, it's cool. It's, it's a, it's a burning Superman or a burn in Austin kind of a torso sketch of Superman ripping doing yeah. the chest rip. Yeah. His, his, his pre 86 Superman uh, drawings always seem a little wanting, you know, they're just like a stock Superman, but they're not, I mean, you can see the burn in it, but you also, it, it doesn't match up to what he's got. What he, what he comes up with in 86. No, it doesn't quite look like what, he does do it, it, it's your point yeah it looks like kind well of... his style had changed by then too i mean he had yeah. it a little bit so he was so that that one on page 17 is just gorgeous um it, it just I, I mean everything's you know so proportioned um he's not doing any of his patented cape food that he does do years later but it's just that right there is just a good poster that would be an awesome poster really oh yeah yeah. Uh, and I like it much better than the uh, image they've got of him coming out of the sun. And I'm, I, I think in Superman 400, they got John Byrne to do a one page pinup and it was very stock image kind of thing, you know. Yeah. Um, but but uh, th that right there, I think, is actually a pretty good one. But still, his uh, later versions of Superman are, are much, much uh, more well, superior. Coming out of the sun, which I guess would be on the maybe the leaf, or is the, it's like second page, but I guess it's on the leaf or the inside page as you open the book up. It's across from yeah. the title page. Uh, it looks, yeah. I would guess that would be early, early burn because it looks like some of his early pre Marvel stuff, maybe Charleston era. Looks like something he did for a Comic Con. Exactly. You know, yeah. Because it looks like it's inked with the markers. Um, and then it's just well, got I, lots of little stuff throughout the, uh, he's got like an alternate, because, uh, you know, let's talk a little bit about the art here. Well, it, I, I got to give my, my little story here. Cause it's like, um, I, 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 it's one of those things where I just lament still to this day because I never bought the book. Um, I, uh, I ran across it once in the wild back in 1993 and I was, you know, basically walking through a half price bookstore with, uh, my current girlfriend and I came across a shelf where apparently someone, they, they gotten a hold of something cause they had like four copies of the, uh, bound volume of all the Raj 2000 stories. And there was three copies of the art of John Byrne there. But I had to decide there in that moment, do I buy these or do I feed my girlfriend? And, you know, I, back then I, I I understood the happy girlfriend meant, you know, things would be happy. So I, I actually said, I'll try and come back later when I actually have some money. Never, that ever never works back. out. And it never works out. out. And it's like, one of, and of course, that the girlfriend didn't work out either. So it's like one of those things I Ugh. regret that I was not able to pick up either one of those because I still have yet to run across them in the wild since then for my birthday recently Fanula found a um it's a comic store but it's really more of a toy store it's got a lot of funkos and action figures and stuff but it's also has a lot of uh old comics that are not really organized that well so we, we went there for my birthday and i started rummaging through stuff and i picked 
almost the entire run. I think I'm only missing two issues, uh, Shogun Warriors. Mm. And I was able to pick up 20, or just, I think there's 20 issues, 21. So I just picked up like 19 issues of those. Reasonably cheap. Uh, I've got a couple other, uh, I think I filled in a, a New Mutant and an FF. Uh, and some ROM. I found some, you know, about five or six copies of ROM that I put in there. And they, a lot of them were, and I'd never seen this before, they were the Whitman prints that I guess was another company that printed. Uh... Uh, uh-oh. I think uh, Brian just had to leave us. Yeah. Wasn't he recording? <laughs> well, I'm recording too. So hopefully oh, okay. I will, uh, I can, and I had to, I can piece it together. I've got two copies because I, I can make it work. Um, well, I think he's got to do work. So I don't know if we can, we can just keep going on and see if he wants to, uh, if he comes back or let's, okay. uh, let's kind of talk about some of this art. We still have, well, Eric, you still with us? Yeah, I'm here. Um, how are you doing? Oh, go ahead. Go ahead I was going to say, I, you know, cause I, um, I just wanted to say that I got this when it came out oh. and probably like Kirk, I probably mail ordered it because I didn't have comic book shops in the wee little town that I grew up in. And so I don't recall how I got, but it must have been through um, mail order. But I, I couldn't I couldn't I was I was elated at this book. It was so exciting to one read the interview with him, but also just to see his um, the all of his sketches i mean like the the image of the x-men on page five um unfortunately to me it didn't have enough phoenix in it they never included her with the group shots but i mean just phenomenal stuff uh i was so excited about the what if thing i probably wrote letters to marvel saying make this happen (laughs) um you know fantastic for artwork you know it was so cool to see uh, all of this stuff and then the, it was my first time ever actually being able to get into the mindset of the creators behind the stuff that i love so much i mean now it's it's everywhere it's yeah i mean you it's pretty readily be facebook available. friends with these artists and writers and authors practically and sometimes they'll even communicate with you so this was so unusual for that time period especially for someone so far away from new york and uh, it was really super exciting i just i love this book and um it's just really cool to that they put it out and uh i really enjoy it well to your point it is a is a kind of a peek inside the mind because especially when you get into the sketchbook part it's there are recognizable characters and it's just whatever he wants to draw there's some uh you know there are frankly some little adult images in here uh, yeah, and let's just... talk a little bit more about that too, because uh, I want to make sure this comes across. This was a non-comic code-approved publication, and therefore Byrne has buxom women, and very clearly, in some instances, they're bare breasts with nips, and other times they're comic characters where you can see the nipples through a T-shirt or or through whatever they're wearing or not wearing. But this was revolutionary at the time. You couldn't find this outside of Playboy or Hustler magazine. I mean, it it was an eye-opener because it it suddenly made it legitimate to draw naked women. If you follow what I'm saying, it, it it was groundbreaking to see 
a comic publication where an artist was drawing nude figures or at least buxom naked breasts on women. Well, right. And it's it's because at this time there was no like adult imprint. There was no uh, like Max comic that Marvel did or anything like that. It was either, uh, you know, comics then were like kitty stuff. And, right. you know, sanitized so, for your protection. Right. And this but, was a step into the more adult world. So when it arrived, not only were you impressed with all the variety of the characters that he drew, but that so many, there were so, uh, I don't know I want to put this. This is, I'm, I'm giving it more weight than is necessary, but there were multiple images. If you look at this book, there were multiple um, buxom women, frequently with no clothes or, or with bare breasts. And that was a step over the line that was um, beyond anything that you could find on the spinner rack that you could find that I was aware of anyplace else. Maybe some of the black and white magazines had gone into that territory. Um, you know, yeah. heavy metal. I don't know. Heavy this, metal. Um, and what was it? Epic illustrated. They were along those lines as well. Yeah. But I don't think okay. that, I think this predates heavy metal. Doesn't it? heavy metal was later possibly later sure. in the eighties, but to your point. Yeah. It no, was different. Not later. Uh, <laughs> and, for that matter, the image that we're using to promote this about Burn with his head exploding, for me, that's a step too far. That's, I mean, it's shocking and it's it's impressive and it's at a certain level it's beautiful, but it's also repulsive. As far as I'm, my personal tastes go, that should never have been included. That was like, I can't show this to anyone else because it's so graphic. Well, he's got I mean, a whole section he calls blood and guts, which is similar to people getting basically blown apart. I mean, it, it's it's probably something that you would see not in American comic, but possibly a European or because uh, their codes can be a little bit more laxed over there. Uh, the same with, you know, to your point of the, the, the some of the scantily clad women, you know, there is. Um, and none of it is, I don't think, is gratuitous. The violence seems gratuitous. But that's more him showing off how he can draw that because there is a shot of a guy getting his head basically just like burn blown you know a pistol to his head and getting blown away um but for the most part i think the women are not i don't think it's gratuitous and there's not a lot of it it's not much different than if you picked up uh, an art book that would have you know, i remember my mom used to have one that was a like kind of how to draw the figure you know, and you're going to, yes. you know, when I was in art school, we had nude models that came in all the time. And after a time, you stop seeing it as a nude person and just what you're drawing. Exactly. So, yeah. So exactly. But this um, this was the first time in a comic shop or in, in my experience that I had ever seen anything uh, cross the line, I guess. And there's no, there's not a, a warning or an, I mean, I, I guess there isn't a warning. No, there's no would, mature label on no. this book. But I don't so, think they did at that point. It was it would have been more if it was in a newsstand. It would have been the, you know the the shelf high above that you know too high for little kids to grab. It would have been. Right. Um, but I remember uh, this has nothing to do with burn, but uh, you know Marvel Super Special, which were mostly the the movie adapt adaptations. Yes. Uh, I remember seeing the Jaws two version, and there's some. And that's, I think that's John Basima. Uh, it's, there's no nudity in it, but there's some gore in it that you would normally find in a 
book. And I don't know if maybe that wasn't comic approved or they it just went by because it was a big format. It was like a big magazine format. Maybe it slipped through. But, you know, there's a scene in that where the, the shark comes out of the water and, and, you know, heads and torso and parts of a woman is just eaten kind of fall out of its mouth. And that's not, you know, that's not something you would see in in regular comics because of the code. So, again, it's interesting to see that you think that, okay, this is the kind of stuff he can do. Mm-hmm. And I guess at first you're shocked. You know, the, the one that to me is the he's got a, a, I guess it's an android or a robot or something. It's a woman. And she's kind of divided down the middle. So on one side you see the internal mechanical workings. On the other side she looks like a, you know, a beautiful woman. And that she's completely nude. And that's uh, interesting that, that you think, oh, he can draw stuff like that. Yeah, but, uh, it grabs your attention yeah. because you haven't seen it anywhere else. No. I think the book is beautiful. Don't get me wrong. I really, really like it. And I love his artwork. It's just this was so new and so unusual at the time. Um, that's why I'm thinking it was never on the on the spinner racks. Um, and there were comic shops, but I'm thinking that I got it. I, I must have saw an ad in the back of CBG newspaper and mailed away, you know, my, my $5 check or whatever it was to have it, it mailed to me. I don't, I just don't remember. Um, but I, I love the book dearly, just as John does. Um, speaking of, um, of this same thing, as long as we're talking about burn, um, in Next Men, there was a backup feature about, oh, I can't remember the character's name, but um, basically there's a gorilla and, and it's a, there's a millionaire and um, eventually the storyline, whatever it is, gets drawn into 20, uh, his novel 20, what is it, 2022, 2021? 2021, 2027, something like that. Anyways, there's, this, there's a particular, there's the millionaire or billionaire recluse. Um, I'll, I'll sum this up real quickly. His entire wait staff, his butlers, his waitresses, everybody around him is nude. And I remember as this this series, this book was coming out, I went to my local comic shop and was flipping through it. And, you know, it's tastefully done, but it's a bit of a shock because, you know, the, the, the guy is a um, recluse and he's a quirk. But my point is, as I was flipping through the book and realized there were nude figures in this, I looked up and said, Oh, hey, you guys realize what you're selling here? And they're like, what? It's the, the next issue. You know, what? I haven't read it yet. And I said, well, you better put this up on the top issue or top shelf. You know, guys kind of um, not restrict it, but at least uh, you, you want to be aware of what's in here. And they're like, why? What is it? At that point, the comic book legal defense fund was involved in a major uh, defense of a couple of comic book shops that had been set up and sued for selling pornography. Wow. So it was a hot topic. It was a, a um, you know, whether or not they had, so they, you know, the, 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 the cops had raided the place. They'd set it up. He had sold the guy, he had sold a copy of something uh, to a kid or to a mother who had come in. Anyways, the end result is it was a hot topic in the industry at the time. And I, there was no warning on the outside of the Next Men book that this was in it at all. And I was concerned for them that they were they were running blind they were open to being set up you know i thought the minimum they could do was put it on the top shelf out of reach of kids um, that they should be aware of it that it was in there 
But at this time, the people in that were running that comic shop, and I think so many other across the nation, oh, they were just making money hand over fist. There were so many books they couldn't possibly preview. When they came in, they just put them on the counter and, you know, let people come in and just buy them right off the counter. Uh, you know what I'm saying? They weren't, they weren't watching. Well, I uh, think at that point they were expecting, because of the comics code, they were expecting the, the companies to kind of police themselves, that hey, we're relying on you to police yourself and what you're going to allow to be printed, and we're just going to stick it on the shelf. So it should be, if it's got that code, it should be okay. But uh, I know but when... Next Men did not have the comic it code. It did, no. Next Men was a little more... Dark Horse was a little more... Uh, exactly. ...adult uh, without coming out. And, and uh, that's before. I think Marvel and DC were still using the comic code, but... I recognize that from a lot of the Terminator stuff. It was a little more violent uh, and hints of some nudity and stuff, more mature themes. It wasn't like, uh, I mean, look what Marvel did with the, the She-Hulk graphic novel where they cut that last page, which is where, now seems very innocent um, with uh, White Wingfoot and, and uh, Jennifer were in bed together. It didn't show anything, but it just showed them in bed together and they had to cut it to. Oh, really? Make, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah. Uh, the, I think the final scene is when it's after she's been told that she can't change back. Spoilers for the She-Hulk graphic novel, but it's 30 years old at least. Yeah, that's the big turning point. Yeah. Uh, so that he's kind of consoling her. Well, he's giving, you know, in the finished book, I think he's giving her like a massage. He's rubbing her feet or something, and he's talking about, you know, how do you feel about that? And she's like, I'm fine with it. And the, Burns' original pencil page, they were in bed together. Really? Uh, yeah. I've not and, seen that. And they thought, you can find that page, I'm sure. In fact, it may be in the back of a... We talked about that when we covered the book with uh, Dave Elliott, who used to do a FF. But, but they thought that was just too, I guess, risque. So he had to cut that and huh. redraw it, similar to... Um, uh, well, there's a, there's, a, there's a... I know the page before that you're talking about. Reed is giving her the results of the test. And says, you know, the gamma radiation or whatever, you know, your cells are locked, you won't be able to turn back. Yeah. And there's a repeating panel that pause, 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 and then she says something like, "So what's the bad news?" Yeah. Yeah. She's okay with it. I remember that, but I don't remember. The, it's the, the very last. I think talking. he's. It, it's it, it. They're back in either his apartment or her apartment, and it's, and it's uh, a white wing place. Yeah. Kind of, they're just kind of having a, a night together, and he's. Yeah, rubbing your feet or something, but that's the altered. It's not the. It's not the. It's uh, not the original. Mm -mm. No, he wanted to do something a little more because it's. It was. I don't know if the if the graphic novels, if those were had the comic code on them or not, because those sometimes those would be a little did. more. Yeah, those are a little more mature, but maybe because it's so tied in with. Yes. Yeah. FF that he was doing that they didn't want. Uh, yeah, when it yeah, was. They it didn't was, want to go there. Yeah, it was the early eighties, but no, it was. Uh, I'm sure that well, happens all the time. There's now. that sequence in uh, in West Coast Avengers when uh, Wanda uh, scratches uh, Wonder Man, Simon Williams, and Byrne had to redo that. You know yeah. the sequence I'm talking about? The way that it's printed, it appears that she is scratching his chest, and then her hand disappears and goes out of frame below, and he screams no. Oh. The original sequence, her head bobs down out of frame. Oh, and he screams no. Yeah, <laughs> he had to redraw that. I can see uh, them. I can see them trying to having to redraw that. But 
It's a far cry from what's out there now that apparently doesn't seem to be any, um, any restrictions. No, I mean, and, and I'm not reading it, but some of the stuff that's going on in the Superman book with, uh, any. it's kind of severe, but him being a, being in jail and being abused in jail. Um, so, um, you guys want to get into some of the yeah, some of this trying some of this book. <laughs> sure, yeah. Sorry, yeah, I didn't mean to take us down that path. <laughs> you went very far down that path. But some of these are the the first page is a sketchbook, and we get a, a kind of a splash page of, of Superman doing the uh, the shirt rip by him and Austin, which is nice. Then the other, the opposite page just looks like other than there's a Howard the Duck. And I'm assuming that's the Hulk that's on top, but he's he's more of a shaggy-haired Hulk. It looks more like Lou Ferrigno, <laughs> which would have been out at the time. So maybe that was, I don't know if that was yes, the inspiration. Then we have a, a headshot of the thing. And then I don't know, is that who this character in the bottom is? It looks almost like he's... Might be a redesigned Misty Knight, maybe? That could be. That could, That's just kind of... Just, kind of, yeah, that's just, just kind a of, random person. Yeah, you know, just a sexy um, woman. And then the... Guys, what... What page number are you on? It's uh, 23. Oh, sorry. Let me jump ahead here. And then, what, I don't know who this other character is. It says SF on his... That may be just an original. I don't know if that's a Starfire or... or that, that's DC. Uh, I don't know who he is. I don't know. There's no there's no captions or explanation of who these people are. It's just random pictures. But it's kind of a cool design. A little Iron Man-like. A little... Uh... Oh, you're in the sketchbook. I got yeah. you now. Yeah, we're okay, on the sketchbook. I mean, yeah, I'm going to jump ahead because I have to jump off here soon. But okay. uh, my favorite of the sketchbook is the color two-page spread with all those characters. Wow. <laughs> oh, the X. Oh, the. It's not the X Men. It's mostly the X Men. Avengers, FF, yeah. X Men. Wow, so and cool. Yeah, he's got that label '79, so that was like a year before this came out. But that's, um, yeah, it's interesting. We've got the old Miss Marvel. We've got his X Men. We've got Wasp. Uh, yep. We got the FF before he was Spider Man. Spider Man swinging in, in the black costume, which is interesting. He's not, you know, he t- he likes to do the black. I love the way he's done the torch because that looks like that's done just with marker. It doesn't look like he's he's outlined it. It's just yellow and red. Yeah, um, yeah, really cool coming in. Uh, I like the way he's done. Uh, uh, Susan, she's kind of her. You can't see her legs. She's disappeared. Yeah, so he's in there. He- which is funny that Miss Marvel was she part of the Avengers at this time? Why she was? Why? Was she? That's why she must. I be think by her. now she was guesting in the Avengers yeah. book a lot, all the way up through um, the infamous two hundred. Yeah, that's why she's in there. Yeah, and uh, yeah, probably my favorite is some of the tech he does. The well, I mean, I like the robot just because that looks well thought out. That you know, that not, it's not because she's a naked woman. Which uh, page are you on? It's page twenty-five. The, yeah. Okay. The android, which is uh, Galadia. 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 Yeah. Uh, Galater. Yeah. Galater. Yeah. Um, so, oh, you know what? That's his preliminary design for the Elswin Oracle. <laughs> yeah. Basically, it is. It, it is. Uh, I wonder of if that's supposed to be Taskmaster below. Task Taskmaster below, and to the right, that kind of hooded mm-hmm. skeletal. Uh, or just yes. death. Could be. Yeah. Oh, I think it's Taskmaster. Is it because it looks like the nose is painted black? It's not. Doesn't he's not. And it doesn't have an absence of a nose. But uh, and then he's got the swashbuckling Superman to the opposite page of that. The lizard's nice too. That looks like a sketch. But the lizards. Um, yeah. Nice. Uh, the blood and guts are like yeah. 
that's that's page twenty six. That's it's interesting, but it's just people being shot up. Uh, and then we get um, aliens, page, aliens, and and we have more of a kind of a sword and sorcery type, a little more rough sketches on page twenty eight, which is a kind of like a Red mm-hmm. Sonya or a, something out of a, a Boris painting is what it looks like. Yeah, it's definitely very Boris or Frazetta, isn't it? <laughs> yep. Now, is that Deathbird? Uh, uh, maybe the top of this collage and to the left could be. Doesn't I don't know. Look like she wasn't that CR. popular at the time, so I don't yeah. know what would be her, would it? I think it's more of just a uh, Conan type, yeah, uh, character. Because these, like I said, these are a rough. These are rough kind of pencils, as opposed to some of the tighter stuff. Like the opposite page, he's got faces, and he's got a beautiful um, African American woman with that's just done in sketch. And it's really nice. And then maybe a picture of him, maybe just a bearded guy. That could be Byrne. It could be Grizzly Adams. Could be Grizzly <laughs> Adams. Yeah. And I, below I'm that, it's kind of like Magneto with the swoop back hair. Uh, and the one below, which is below, it's of the images, it's the lower left. That almost doesn't look like Byrne. It's it's a nice sketch of sort of kind of a menacing face, but that almost doesn't look like Byrne. It looks like, and I can't think who it looks like, but. Fantasy, maybe. Oh, no, you're thinking the artist. It doesn't look like Burns' art. It doesn't look like his art. Yeah, it doesn't look like I his. Agree. I mean, it does and it doesn't. It doesn't. It kind look, of looks Neil Adams-ish to me. That's maybe that's it. It does look a little more detailed, you know, because the one next to it, which looks like kind of a proto-Nazi or something, definitely mm-hmm. looks like Burn. And then the one opposite of that is I don't. It's just a to to. Uh, it's a kind of a woman. Looks like in a. Looks basically it's Kitty like Pride. a T-shirt. Yeah, is it Kitty Pride? You think? Yeah, uh, that would be Kate Pride. Catherine Pride. That's Catherine Pride. Yeah, that's that's, a, that's adult Kate. That's Catherine an adult Pride. Kitty Pride. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then next page for thirty is a lot of tech, which is kind of cool. Uh huh. I'm interested in his tech. Uh, yeah. And then more character studies. He's got a really nice misty night. Yeah. Uh, uh, Cyclops and I don't know who that is next to Cyclops. If that's Colleen Wing, maybe it would, go, it would make sense because he's getting misty below her. And and he they were trying to connect Colleen and Cyclops when they thought Jean was dead originally back oh. in the late teen issues. No, um, that never panned out, did it? Well, yeah, no. Jean came back too soon. Yeah. Like, um, excuse me, I'm not even cold in the ground, That's and you're right. already trying to get onto Colleen, huh? All right, dude. <laughs> then we have a dark. Kind of a dark phoenix. I wish it was a little. You could see that or better. That was in color. You can't tell. It's very dark. But it's it, kind of a. Uh, I'm it's not dark phoenix. Crackle. Dark phoenix with a lot of Kirby crackle behind her. Yeah. Well, it's not dark phoenix because that costume is the phoenix, the it's, regular phoenix. It's, the, it's probably the green and gold. Yeah. So it's probably her being very angry about something right. about to really of, mess you up. Exactly. Harnessing her power. Then we have. Yeah. I think. I guess that's Storm above Jean. Definitely. Yeah. Corner. We've got a kind of a family shot of Gene's sister with very 70s mustache with the, <laughs> with and the glasses husband there and the glasses exactly it's, it's magnum pi influence that looks like or uh tom selleck uh, and tom selleck or uh, i'm thinking more of uh, matt houston uh we kind of got a couple big plastic splash pages 32 is yeah uh it's lois and clark i assume another bird in austin and then I get, assume that's Lex Luthor with his high tech gun. Yeah, he's got in his prison uniform. In his prison uniform, yeah. 
So it was really cool for me to see um, him drawing Superman because uh, this was kind of like that I can recall the first time seeing John Byrne do Superman. Yeah, and Superman. I thought this was really cool. Yeah. Well, his uh, Lois Lane is very different than what he would originally come out with. This looks more yeah. of a stock, as Brian would say, a stock. Well, uh, that was the Lois, Lois at the time. Yeah. Lois was... at the time had black hair, long hair. Um, she was very trendy. And um, yeah, uh, that, that's the Lois at the time. Not yeah, quite a broom just... skirt. Yeah, she's but... got a kind of a very trendy outfit. I mean, Vern, we've always said that. Vern is always on top of whatever fashion he's dealing with. And... I'd say she's interchangeable with Jean Grey of the time. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I in, in terms that of the style, is, of that face is a Jean Grey face. Yeah. Yeah. I want to back up uh, a page above that to thirty-one. You're talking about the family shot in the upper left. Yeah. The uh, the little notation here that says Jean's sister Sarah question mark. Um, the only time that I recall Jean's being or having a sister being referred to was in Bizarre Adventures 28 where they have an origin story for Jean where her sister drowns. No, that wasn't her sister. That was her friend, Annie. Wasn't it? I thought it was her sister. Was it her sister? Am I being correct? Well, this anyway, could be if, if he says in the interview they're, they're plotting ahead and this obviously we meet the family when Jean starts to go bad. Uh, could like, be. Yeah, uh, they're thinking ahead that okay, well, this is maybe this is something he showed to Claremont. Like, okay, this is what I'm doing for. Yeah. Because uh, that I assume that's Gene. If that's his, if that's Gene's sister. That's Gene's husband, or Gene's sister's husband. And I don't think we get. Uh, no, she's not husband. married at that time. They're yeah. just two kids on yeah. a boat or a raft or something. Well, Being I think in the book, right. she's not. She's not married. It's just it, we get her sister or her mom and dad. Because this shows that the sister's got. Oh, uh, it looks like a little girl. Well, if we recall from the, I think it was in the Dark Phoenix saga, Sarah does talk about, does this mean my kids will be mutants? Or maybe yeah. it was even earlier. I mean, it's been established that Sarah has kids somewhere along the way. Um, because I do recall that she was concerned when she found out that Jean was Phoenix, does that mean that she might have powers or her kids might have powers? Right. So, it was kind of that running thing there. Yeah. Um, and we've seen Sarah in the Elseman. Right. Yeah. She has, uh, I don't think we've seen any of the rest of the family, but we've seen her because um, we're hanging out with them. But yeah, I mean, I think this is, again, this is interesting. It's stuff that hasn't quite come about that they're, uh, he's just kind of thinking through stuff. Yeah. And, interesting stuff. And Folks, then, enjoy Critical Error. I'm going to pop off. Yeah. Okay. Well, we can kind Thanks of go for being here, John. Thanks, yeah, it was fun. Thanks, John. Ciao. Bye, everyone. There goes another one. Hold your fire. There's no life forms. It must have short-circuited. Kirk, so I think we kind of the go... color inset that we were talking about. The, yeah. The, uh, the, uh, <laughs> all the, the Marvel characters. I like how the Scarlet Witch is giggling over something. She's laughing at... I think uh, she's laughing at Kirk. Yeah, Nerd, uh, Nightcrawler, who's done something or is joking with Ms. Marvel. Probably, because she's looking at him, yeah. It's probably... This looks like, and I don't know if it has been, this looks like a book cover. Uh, that They would do a wraparound book cover for some collection or something. So, uh, 
it's yeah i don't know i've never seen this anywhere else so much of what's in this book you i've never seen anywhere else until we get to critical error and that was a big surprise when that came out on its own yeah years I, later. I think i said i thought uh brian and i had covered this i think we just talked about it because i've either got it i've either saw it in this or i've got the colorized version that came out later of the silent story you know that's the whole gimmick on this and it looks very uh epic or heavy metal it doesn't look like a, a marvel even the the his detailed design looks a little uh i don't want to say mobius but it looks a little it's it's like something you would find or you know it, it works like a star trek episode where it's the gimmick is that there's no there's no dialogue at all that right uh, i thought know. that was brilliant that's what what just I loved it because of it. It was totally silent. Well, when, it should. And we, we get down to the fourth page, which is page 36. There's a time sequence there where he's the stranded astronaut is sitting on the, um, the surface of the planet, having set up the beacon, the distressed beacon. And he sits there and watches the horizon, and he sees various planets and stars. I don't know if they're rising or falling at this point. but uh, And then he finally tumbles to the fact that one of them, a half, half circle on the horizon, isn't moving. It isn't rising. It isn't falling, which leads directly to the next page where he uses his binoculars and goes, holy smokes, it's a yeah. shield. It's a dome. It's a dome. So I just love this. It's, it took me a little while to catch that first uh, sequence to figure out what was going on. But <clears throat> I remember devouring this and just thinking about each panel and, well, what he was trying to convey each it, time. I like it. it. It shows the strength of visual storytelling, that you don't mm. need any dialogue, you know, if it's done right, to follow um, what's going on. To your point that, you know, he, he in that first sequence, which is the time lapse, you really can't tell. You don't, you wouldn't notice it until he gets his binoculars out and sees it. And then he goes and grabs his, his, uh, his duffel bag. And like, I guess he thinks there's life there because he's buried his crewmates. It looks like there's two graves, um, and it's interesting that one. This is this is a conscious effort on him. One of the graves has a cross, one doesn't. So does that mean one was a Christian and one was not, or one was a different faith? So that he's taken the time to not just do two crosses, which is, I think would be standard. But he's. Can you out. read the grave marker? Is there? I don't see any wording on it. I see what what some representation of writing, of grave markers but i can't read it i can't Can you? i can't i can't get close enough to uh the only text i can read is that um on the ship is a read up this is radiation leakage food stuff contaminated in meaning he can't right. and his suit he's not going to survive right his suit says um suit systems or something so it's he's you know when he kicks a, he kicks a box meaning i can't you know i can't live any of this stuff so I've, that's when he finds he kind of he looks like he sets off a beacon and yep. then he just sits there maybe Resler's like, hopefully somebody comes and finds me. That's when he notices one of the, the the figures he sees is a dome. And so he hurriedly goes and grabs his his, uh, his duffel, loads it with, looks like he grabs a weapon. And, you know, I, and he just sets off. And it's a nice sequence too, where he's he just starts walking towards, and then he sits down. And then I don't know if he's deciding whether to go or not. Uh, the only thing, the point is he has to exert. He's got to yeah. take breaks. He has to rest. Yeah. He doesn't have enough oxygen, and ultimately, just before he arrives, he collapses face forward. 
this is a real struggle. This is his last effort to survive. I think yeah. that's the point. And he finds, and it really, this is, a lot of this is a lot of black and white. So it, it and there's some zipitone in it, but if it was colored, which I think there is a colored version of this, it is, um, it's just, I mean, if you like burn tech, this is a story for you. It's full of, it's very alien-like with a suit yes. that he has. Yes. Him finding this derelict or dome and he goes in and, and you know, takes his goes suit off the hatch. and then just finds a, uh, like the, like a, it's like the Garden of Eden. He just finds uh, this beautiful tropical uh, underneath the dome with strange birds and insects and there's a pool with strange fish. It's um, an oasis. Exactly. And then he's, of course, he's like, oh, then he's, and then it's for also, this is very Planet of the Apes like because he sees footprints. And then he follows them. Then he sees something that looks, I didn't catch this first time I read it. He's got human footprints and they look like they've got big imprints. Yeah. Like maybe they're some, something that's bigger than a, than a human. And then he's startled by a, a woman, a fully nude woman. He comes up with a stick uh, and he pulls his gun and they kind of have a meet cute. And then she doesn't know who he is. And, She's, you know, touching his beard and she leads him to her shelter and he rests and then she brings him food. Well, first there's a sequence where he's puzzled yeah. and is looking at the size of the blocks and realizing, holy crap, how is this constructed? Yeah, he know he knows she, there's no way she, she produced this thing because he tries to, I guess, move one or pick one up. Then he sits on it and that's when she brings him a plate of, I guess, it's fruit and... Of course, he doesn't test it, but I guess he figures if she can eat it, it's okay for him. And then he's doing a little, uh, he, he kind of gets real macho with her. He, he's, uh, well, she's intrigued by his holster. Yeah. And so he gets the so gun he out. So he pulls the gun and, and starts twirling it. Yeah. And shoots a rock. And then she likes that. And he shoots another rock. Another rock. And then he shoots a bird. And then she's horrified, which is really like, he's like, uh oh, that was, uh, uh, one too far. But, He's very pleased with himself until he does that, and then she runs off. Um, and then, so he goes looking for her and finds her holed up, kind of crying and sobbing. And then he tries to be cutesy pie and falls in the water. Uh, and then we get a little, uh, you know, PG-13 scene of, you know, he strips off. They're both swimming uh, around in this pool. He's kind of playing with her. Playing and frolicking. Yep. And then, very innocent. Yeah, and then he, uh, you know, then it gets a little more mature. They're, you know, he they pull up on the, and this guy is, or this guy's drawn after Burns. This guy's very hairy. Yeah, um, this is definitely Burns. It's self-image. Yeah. So they uh, they basically make love on the beach or on the the shore, and then he's I guess wakes up in the area where the little it was kind of a little alcove that, that she first met her. He wakes up and he's still naked. His clothes are there. It's like laying on fur or something. Yeah, or fur or Very some kind sensual. of sensual. Yeah. And but he, he gets... wakes up and he notices his holster is gone, or his gun is gone out of the holster. As though, yeah, so he kind of panics, gets dressed, and frankly kind of starts looking for her and, and, and finds a, like an access hatch or something. It goes, he goes into the... Um, uh, into the the like the the technical part of this, what are the underground? It's almost like the Savage Land is what this reminded me so much of. And the Jeffrey's tube, so yeah, to exactly. Speak. It's a Jeffrey's tube. It's exactly what it is. And then now he's back into the tech world that's underneath this. Um, and he 
comes across what we assume is what left the bigger footprints. And we saw this this figure earlier. It's kind of it was a faceless kind of a uh, no features uh, face, and it's a it looks like a huge robot, and it kind of reaches about for about the size of a sentinel. Oh, he's clearly not a sentinel. But... No, it's more it looks more Iron Man or the Iron Monger. Yes, yes, yes. And it reaches for him. He of course panics and takes off. She chases after him, but and then he. And then I guess this is the part that confused me was he. He kind of remembers seeing the footprints coming, going from human to this larger footprint, and how heavy things were. And then he thinks she is this creature. You know, maybe she can take the form of a human. And he thinks, oh no, this you know, this is this huge hulking thing. So he just skedaddles out of there. I mean, he goes up the ladder, he runs and uh, tries to get out. He, can't, he finds a hatch, I guess, and he can't get out. And then I guess he opens it, or she opens it. I can't tell. He gets he, the door open. He pries it open. I think he pries it open. Uh, yeah. And he gets in, he sees, what he sees is the uh, uh, rescue ship. Rescue ship yeah. arriving. And it's Now, NCC. this is the one part that I that I think is, is a slip-up, the problem. And it's not critical, but... They're inside the dome and obviously breathing air. He needs the spacesuit to survive. He runs out to the space, the rescue craft, and none of them are wearing no, respirators. No. Nobody's yeah. breathing air. So we have to assume that the air is around the outside of the dome and at least being leaked. I don't know. It, it's the one fly in the ointment of this story. Yeah, because he'd otherwise would have to show that he'd left his spacesuit somewhere else. And he'd have to get that. Otherwise, how's he going to get him out? And he runs at these two guys. And warns them. And like, hey, there's a, you know, there's a, and she, you see her following. You see her coming out, following. Yes. So they must see her. They, they, they see her. And I guess he's said, hey, you know, that's a dangerous alien, whatever it is. And they blast off, take off. And she's kind of sorrowful. And she, she lays down and, and is kind of sad that he's Stop. gone. And then the big robot, L7, um, comes up behind, comes up behind her to kind of, con- to console her. And so that they are not the same. He must be the caretaker of her. So exactly. She, yeah, so uh, then the epilogue is him in a Star Wars kind of cantina, drinking away his sorrows. And then we see that she has given birth to a baby, and the robot is, and they're watching them, babe. watching and taking care of him. So it's 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 very Twilight Zone that he thinks you know he you know. Would he have been happy there? He could have, you know, would they have learned to communicate? Could he have been stayed there? Uh, if he hadn't ran away, the, the rescue ship would have shown up anyway. And you think they would have found their way into the Citadel or whatever it is, the dome. Would they have taken action against the robot? Would the robot have, you know, killed or imprisoned them? Because, again, we don't know. Is he here? Is he this sentient thing and she's like a pet or a zoo animal? Is, yeah, I get that impression. You know, is it some kind of experiment and he's programmed to watch after her? Uh, her? You know, he obviously doesn't care. He seems happy that she's had this baby and he's there to take care of her because he provides shelter and I'm assuming he takes care of all the food or the machines do. So, uh, you know, is the critical error of the story, you think, him making the wrong assumption and thinking yeah. she's an alien, I got to get away from her. And he could have stayed there and been happy, I guess. Um, we don't know. Um, but it's, it, it is. It's, it's, it's masterfully done because you don't need a bit of dialogue. You know exactly what's going on. And 
you know, that's uh, a storyteller should be able to do that. You know, if you have to have the words to kind of tell you what's going on, then, you know, you've done something wrong, but, uh, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a, it's a beautiful story and it's nice. And it looks like, uh, for some reason it reminds me a lot of, I have a, when I played D and I had a D and D module that was about the adventures finding a downed spacecraft. So it was kind of a science fiction version of D and D and in the module they have, designs for all the stuff inside robots and the ship and all that kind of stuff and they had a kind of a environment like this within it kind of like a bio lab or a biosphere inside the ship and that's what this reminds me of a lot of that so it's um it isn't l7 the name of the robot from solo have you seen solo the star wars yeah k2 is it the female robot that is the the one that is the has all the star charts uh, that becomes the robot in the Falcon. Isn't that L7? I don't know. I can't recall. Yeah, I don't remember. It's a good question. Yeah, but it's a good story, and that's that's it, you know. And then it's got a a checklist in the back. It does tell who did. Yeah, Roger Stern has assembled this list of all of uh, John Byrne's work to date. To date, yeah. So the last thing we have is what? Uh, it's Space 1999, Marvel Team Up, where's X-Men? Let's see what it's got. It's got well, Fantastic Four 218, but doesn't go any further than that. X-Men, when this was printed, was up to 135. Five. So he'd already just about, he hadn't left the book yet, but that was that was the big Dark Phoenix um, one. Yeah, yeah. It's got the Emergency. Hmm. Wailing a Chopper Bunch, we've covered that one. Yeah. Charlton has uh, Doomsday plus one, and there are, as I'm trying to recall, there's like five or six issues of this, which they list here, and then they reprinted them after the initial uh, print run here. I can't recall exactly what the print run, but it's, it's slightly, not mistitled, but retitled, Doomsday plus one redux or or recolored or something at any rate there have been two volumes of doomsday plus one reprinting all those original stories and they're like four or five issues even this has a footnote saying a seventh issue was written and drawn but never published yeah we covered uh second uh we covered uh i think the faceless foe number two we covered that one just me and brian and we covered the space 1999 uh is it bringing back alive number three his first issue of that Thing. Yeah, I can't remember which one you did, but I know. Yeah, well, there's an afterword by I, I haven't. I honestly haven't read this by uh, this afterword by Chris Claremont. And then there are a couple of uh, other, at least for this issue, there's a couple. There's a color version of Critical Error where he first meets the girl, where he's gone and colored it with ink, so he's wearing like an orange jumpsuit, and he's got you know he just colorized that. And then there's I don't know what this thing on the other side of it. It's page sixty four. It looks like some kind of siege tower from, like, a Tolkien book or something. I don't know what that is. Yeah, it's an otherworldly Polynesian uh, Inca tower, something or other. It's no figures in it, but it's a great foreign alien world setting. It's pretty spectacular. Again, shows his his vision, his variety, his uh, output. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it... it uh... I'm scrolling down here. I've been fortunate enough to get a PDF of this. And there, there again, we've got the color spread of the Marvel characters on the back cover and the address for uh, SQ Productions. 
and then there's a blank page, and then I think there's a close-up of the, at least in this PDF, they're showing the two two-page spread in single, like you were saying, a wraparound cover. Mm -hmm. They've got it full size uh, again, so it's appeared four times now on, in this PDF that I'm looking at, and then it's all colorized. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. And you know what it made me think of? Um, there's been a, a poster of uh, all the Marvel characters, everybody that John Byrne drew um, that was under shrink wrap, shrink, um, yeah, shrink wrap covering uh, mounted on cardboard. It came out in the 80s or something like that. And the most obvious figures are Galactus and the Watcher standing in the back. But it has everybody associated with the Fantastic Four. Heroes, villains, supporting hmm. cast. Just a spectacular print. And I bought it just before I moved to uh, moved to Salt Lake City, as it turns out, um, just after I was married. And I put it in the U-Haul, and I drove clear across country. And when I got there... I discovered I'd driven through a rainstorm, and the tires of the U-Haul trailer had thrown uh, water up off the pavement and into a hole, a vent in the the U-Haul trailer. And the one thing that got damaged was that poster, uh. which was still under plastic. Uh, so it's got some water damage to it, but I think I still own it. But, uh, boy, uh, all these memories are connected together. Yeah. Well, I've got the – they never released this because they couldn't do it as a poster, but – the first run, volume one of Ohatmu, it wasn't Burn. I, I can't remember who did the artwork, but all of those uh, covers connected. Similar to what Burn did, but his was kind of a, a linear left to right kind of scrolling. So if you, it would be mm -hmm. one long, thin poster if you put his together. But they released all the Ohatmu volume one as a poster, and I've got it. It's I think it's five foot by five foot. Um, yeah. And it has, because they're all more kind of in one big clump but that's uh that's kind of cool that that um, you know get it out and get it framed so does this complete our coverage of this i think uh, it does we uh you know we had to you know it, we had to stay behind and finish it up but uh i'm interested in what everybody else's thoughts if if you know are you if you're a burn fan have you not are you not aware of this um and now you can i've seen it you can pick it up it's not it's not super cheap but i've seen an ebay for like 30 dollars but you can probably find it, you know, a worn copy of it for less than that. So it's not. Yeah. You'd you know, have to look at it, use bookshops, um, yeah. use bookstores. You may or may not find it in a flea market. Uh, I'm not sure that comic shops would still have this, but depending on uh, depending on the interest of the uh, proprietor. Yeah. Um, and it, let me give you a 30 second story on the side. When I was buying comics about this time period. In Detroit, just prior to moving back to or moving to Salt Lake City, there were like seven comic shops around the suburbs. The one that I'm talking about is Comic Archives, where it's the only place that I have ever seen the bound copy of um, Wally Wood, the Mar Marvel Universe of Wally Wood. Or, um, and the odd thing was he had a, a short box on the counter that had wits in and various uh, comic uh, journals and other things and i could never figure out what in the world he had these things for only like a buck that were way too expensive for me buying comics at you know 50 cents and 75 cents yeah i couldn't afford those things come to find out the guy was a big wally um wally wood fan and he had all the fanzines 
and just as you know, we followed John Byrne, this guy followed Wallace Wood, and I kicked myself for not buying those things because those things, again, have just accelerated in price into the stratosphere, and they were all there, used copies in good shape that I could have purchased. So I'll, you know, if yeah, you can it's, find it's... the right proprietor for a comic shop, you might be able to find one of these books on his shelf or under the counter uh, collecting dust that he'd be willing to let go for, you know, cheap. Yeah, and it's and it's it would probably be in like a miscellaneous bin because I think it's more magazine yes. size than comic yes. size. So it wouldn't be in what, like a long box. It'd be a you know a, a magazine thing. But uh, I don't, yeah, I don't. The digital copy I think is pretty easy to find. If you just want to see it. I know Critical Error has been published. I think on its own. I think I have a. I think it's yeah, in who a. Printed that was that IDW. I don't remember. I, I've got it, but I don't remember. It may be in the. I know. Two years ago, maybe three, he came up with a coloring book that the artwork looks very similar to Critical Error, and I've got that. And then I think he came up with a that may be in that coloring book he put out. Okay. Um, I I don't know. I'm just curious. I don't. I know I bought it, and I know that it wasn't Marvel or DC, and I can't for the life of me remember. It, but it was such a pleasant surprise to see that it had been released and colorized, and you know with the simple addition of a, a horizontal line across the belly of the, uh, the, the gal, the nude figure, yeah. she's instantly wearing panties and it's already sanitized. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was brilliantly done. Yeah. You could easily take that story and turn it into, and you could either do it live action or animated. You could turn it into a twilight zone. Or yes. A, yes. Uh, You're right on the money there. Yeah. That is exactly the feel of this thing. Yeah. Uh, a silent Twilight Zone episode. Yeah, you could do a thirty-minute easily do a thirty-minute, and yeah, you you don't have to have any. As long as the actors can pull it off, you don't. You've got the groundwork right there. You just have the actors kind of mime what they've got drawn there. So, uh, you could even do it if you want to do it as animated. You could easily do uh, a little thirty-minute, twenty-minute, you know, knockoff. But uh, this is this is interesting. It's uh it's interesting to kind of see in the you know compare where his mindset was in this interview compared to what he is now, he seems a little more jovial. You know, he's, he's kind of got the reputation, whether it's earned or not, of being kind of a cranky old man. And mm-hmm. I, you know, from the few, the two times I've seen him, I wouldn't say that that's accurate. I would say he just has definite ideas the way things should be. And he may be a little, uh, strong willed about the way things are. Uh, you know, I you can't you can't you know if he and if he's disillusioned with the way the the system is now and he doesn't work in it, then that's you know that's that, I think that happens with a lot of people. Um, but it's if you like John Byrne, I I would not recommend this more because you get a one the interview is great, and two you get a lot of peeks in behind uh, the stuff that that he's done that is not necessary. It's just his musings on a page, you know, his ideas and the critical error story is good too. It's a it's a nice um, it's a nice way to tie the the issue up at the end so i found it i i looked on the uh, grand comic book database and searched the story titled critical air it was published by dark horse in 1992 okay as that's a one shot and there's a second entry here if i can flip real quick that's probably when they were doing all his uh, when he was deep in the next men stuff and he was doing a lot of dark horse stuff i don't know why but they have a star wars dark empire issue linked to this 
Yeah, that so, doesn't make sense. But <laughs> no, no, I like, think I it's a case. It at all. Hang on, it's. I think the story has shown uh, has been reprinted in that volume. I think that's what it's telling me. Yeah, that it's it's in Dar- Star Wars Dark Empire number five oh. as a backup story. Okay, that makes. I sense. think that's what it's telling me. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, I think we've. Uh... We've, uh, no, it's just an ad. Lost it's t- just an ad. That's all it is. I'm oh, sorry, sorry for it. Okay. Since okay. we lost Dollar Other co-hosts, I think we've uh, I think we've covered this, and uh, I will let people know that if you want to get in uh, in touch with us, we are uh, our email is got to get burned at gmail.com. You can also reach us on our Facebook page. We do a lot more. I'm more in that than I'm in the email, so we get a lot of feedback and posts from. From uh, our fans there, uh, if you want to join, so that when we release, we, re- we release new shows there. I will release teaser artwork that, you know, if you want an upcoming show, you'll get it there. Um, and that's and then we can be found on the Two Two Freaks Network. Just search for Two Two Freaks. And lots of other shows there. If you, you know, if, if, if you come for John Byrne, but you like comics or movies or uh, other general geeky things, we have tons and tons of shows there. So I can't recommend the other shows enough. Uh and I think that's it. You got any final uh, final thoughts on this, Kirk? Only that it's a great volume, that it's well worth your seeking out because of its unique content, whether you find the reprint, the Dark Horse reprint of the Critical Error story, or you want to want to go find an original uh, printing of this, um, this volume. Uh, absolutely worth it. I'm not sure that I'd spend 30 bucks for it, but at the time, $5.95 or whatever the the cover price was was outrageously expensive for us back when it came out, but I've never regretted spending it. No, because I mean comics were probably they were the cusp of what sixty to seventy five cents, probably still sixty cents, sixty five cents. So this was yeah, this was a uh, this was a commitment, but there's no ads in it, so you're not you're not getting any uh, any revenue there. So it's kind of like his uh, Star Trek books that come out that were uh, his Fumetti's that are like ten bucks, but. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't know if I'd spend $30 on it, but it's worth, you know, maybe you can find it in the local library. Maybe, you know, just find a digital copy of it if you just want to see it. Uh, you know, if you don't necessarily want to keep it, you can still read the interview and see the artwork. So, uh, you know, it's, um, it's, uh, it's I, I recommend as much as Kirk does. And I'm sure Scott and, not Scott, if John and Brian were on, they would, uh, they would echo that and recommend it as much. Shame they had to drop off. But uh, I think that's it, Kirk. I think from... For uh, Third Degree Burn, I will sign off and say I am Tim Elliott. And I'm Kirk Greenfield. Thank you. For me, one of the most curious things about this piece is its wonderful e-functionalism. Yes, I see what you mean. Divorced from its function and seen purely as a piece of art, its structure of line and color is curiously counterpointed by the redundant vestiges of its function. And since it has no call to be here, the art lies in the fact that it is here. Exquisite. Absolutely exquisite. Thanks for listening. You can find us and many other great shows at tutufreaks.com. That's T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S.com. Third Degree Burn is spelled with the number three, R-D-D-E-G-R-E-E, 
B-Y-R-N-E, and is part of the Tutu Freaks network of shows. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just look for Third Degree Burn, spelled with the number three, and Burn spelled B-Y-R-N-E. Compliments, complaints, and recipes can be sent to gottagetburned at gmail.com. That's G-O-T-T-A-G-E-T-B-Y-R-N-E-D at gmail.com. Drop us a line and tell us how we're doing. Till next time, this has been Third Degree Burn. Some men aren't looking for anything logical, like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn.